Hello and welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat. And normally I always say brought to you by Jason Lemkin, godfather of Sass. But today that is literally true as I'm so delighted to say that after 90 episodes, Jason has decided to join us on his own show. Um, this introduction is pretty hard to do really for me, but I can do the formal and the casual. So let's start with the casual. And Jason's been one of the greatest people to work with for me. Every day I work with him, I learn something new and find new things to be excited by. And I'm very proud to call Jason a friend and a mentor to me. And if you want to join Jason and I and many other SAS friends at SASTA this year, then all you have to do is enter the promo code Drinks with Harry. those three words, Drinks with Harry, when you purchase your tickets and you'll get 20% off and free mojitos. Now, for the formal version, Jason Lemkin is the founder and VC at SASTA. He has led or sourced the first investments in many leading enterprise SAS startups, such as Greenhouse, Pipedrive, Algolia, TalkDesk, Rainforest QA, Automile, and many more incredible companies. He's also an advisor or small investor in Showpad, Front, Influitive, BetterWorks, and many other SaaS leaders. Jason's also co-founded two successful startups, Selling to the Enterprise. Before SaaS and VC investing, he was CEO and co-founder, EchoSign, the web's most popular electronic signature service, from inception through its acquisition by Adobe Systems. He then served as vice president of web services at Adobe, where he oversaw the growth of EchoSign and Adobe Document Services to $50 million in ARR in 2012, and then $100 million in ARR in 2013. Prior to EchoSign and Adobe, he co-founded one of the only successes in nanotechnology, Nanogram Devices, which was acquired for $50 million just 13 months after founding. Other than SaaS, he's pretty much like me, no known hobbies. But before we welcome Jason into the hot seat today, if you do make the wise decision of joining us at SaaS Annual, then you'll see the incredible Algolia team and product in person. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about Algolia and how they help SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SASTA podcast. However, enough from me. So without further ado, I'm so excited to welcome Jason Lemkin, founder at SASTA. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Jason, it's so brilliant to have you on your own show. Uh, very good of you to, to join us after about 90 episodes. Uh, so thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for finally slotting me in, Harry. So well, this it, is great. It's an, it is an honor. It was a tough one, but we managed to fit it in, you know. Um, <laughs> but I'd love to get started today with a little roundup on you. And I mean, I really hope everyone knows you if they're listening to the Sasta podcast. But for anyone that maybe... Actually, I hope, they, I hope they aren't. I hope the community is big enough and you've contributed so much to it that, that, that a bunch of people actually have no idea who I am. That would be a good thing. Okay, well then let's absolutely roll with that and say, Jason, how did you make your way into what I describe as the wonderful world of early stage SaaS investing? I made my way into the wonderful world of SaaS investing completely by accident. I sold my last company, EchoSign, to Adobe. It was a it was a good exit and it was a, a good ride. But I I needed to keep going. I needed to do more. Part of the way I started at the beginning was with coring and blogging and all of the stuff which built Saster. And then I realized that investing for me would be a way I could work with a handful of CEOs that were better than me and help them go even further than I did. So 
all of that rolled together, I would say it's cathartic for me. It's catharsis. I, I, there's nothing I love better than that moment in time when a founder I've partnered with or invested in surpasses me. That's like the best feeling there is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I do want to start then today with quickly defining the thesis around the SASTA fund. So let's start with what the check size is and kind of what the expected revenues are. Yes. The, the, the check size, interestingly, ends up being derivative of the size of the fund. But the typical check sizes for a SASTA fund will be from 1 million something up to about 4 million at the high end. That's, that's sort of the goal. And the timing typically less than six or eight K a month in revenue by MRR, less than a hundred K in ARR is probably too early. And more than two million in ARR, maybe even a million, more than one to two million in ARR is at the edge of too late in today's world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the Goldilocks phase typically is eight to hundred K, eight to 150 K in MRR. Absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. But but now we've kind of outlined that. That, that generalist the thesis around you investing with Sasta. I want to ask the, yes. the terrible question, which I absolutely hate all interviewers ask. And it's, what do you look uh-huh. for in perspective in opportunities to invest in? And I'm not going to finish it there. So please do not worry about that. I'm being much more definable because I've, I've watched pretty much every video and podcast you've ever done because I'm a stalker. Um, but with that in mind, let's first talk about team. So when assessing yes. the team itself, how do you evaluate the actual quality of founder? What do you break down? Well, first of all, as a late seed investor, I actually, I only evaluate the CEO, and this may be different than other folks. I believe that if the CEO is better than me, which let's chat about, if they're better than me, and there's someone that I would work for, which really are the same, should be part of the same criterion, I believe they already have an adequate team and can recruit a great team going forward. So really, I do meet the rest of the management team, if there even is one, for diligence processes to make sure that there aren't issues, that things aren't going to blow up. But really, all the diligence I need to do is the CEO. Okay. So we said about CEO being better than you. What does that look? like and why you've had two exits both incredibly successful one for plus 100 million so talk to me about kind of what makes that thesis what it is yeah this is my number one investment criterion and especially vcs that weren't founders think this is the quirkiest thing they've ever heard but i would hazard a guess that 80 percent of the folks listening to this podcast know exactly what i'm saying they know exactly ceos they've met that are better than them and and where i learned this one of my investors at EchoSign was emergence capital which is also an lp in my fund and back in the day, I mean, Emergence was, it remains one of the top SaaS investors of all time. So they had all, like almost all the SaaS companies. There weren't that many of us. <laughs> so all the CEOs got together and I, and I had a chance to meet a lot of folks when I didn't know what I was doing. And it was clear from that cohort that the, the one that I met that was the best was Peter Gassner from Viva Systems. And Peter's speaking at the SaaS annual this year. And I didn't really know what pharma CRM was. I didn't really know what Peter did exactly. But man, this guy could just see the future, not only of his company, but of my company in a way that I'd never seen before. And Viva's worth like six or eight billion today. The next one that blew my mind was David Sachs from Yammer, back then now at Zenefits. And David, I met David, and David had already had a huge exit on PayPal, was living an amazing life in LA, uh, had become a movie producer, actually is probably, my guess is, one of the most successful angel investors in SaaS and B2B of all times. The last thing he needed to do was start Yammer or another company. But not only did he start Yammer as a spin out of, of his other company, but he packed the first 
15 employees up and drove them up from LA to the Bay Area to go big. Now, how many people that have already had a good exit and are living the good life in LA and living the Hollywood life are going to pack their entire team up and drive them up to SF to go big? I'm not sure I would have done that. And I'm a pretty crazy driven guy. And if you look at the exits from that emergence class, and that emergence fund will be one of the best of all time. Service Max just exited for almost a billion, right, to G. And David Yarnold was really good too. David Yarnold, David Sachs, Peter Gassner, they're all better than me. They're all better than me. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but as a founder, you know. So when I meet a founder, for example, that won't pack his whole team up in the minivan and drive up to LA, when I meet a founder that can't see the future, when I meet a founder that won't get on a jet, when I meet a founder that's tired, that's tired in the wrong way, I'll never invest no matter how good the traction is. What does tired in the wrong way mean? And, and having been a founder, is there not a sense of empathy? Oh, I have nothing but empathy. But what I found, SaaS is so hard. It's harder than B2C. And the reason it's harder is because you have to recruit more VPs and more executives more times more early. You have to you have to recruit a VP of sales and a VP of marketing, a VP of customer success and VP of engine product and all of this. And it's so hard to do. And a lot of them don't make it. And you have to do it again in six to nine months. And it's hard on all of us to do this. And you have to go get on a jet and go meet with all the customers. The B2C guys get just get to stare at the monitors all day. But we got to go get on jets too. <laughs> You're so about to make so us a hard. load of enemies here, Jason. I think consumers. No, it's true. And here's here. I'll teach you a little secret. When you're reading TechCrunch and you see a pretty good exit in B2B or SaaS, a pretty good one, not huge, but pretty good. You can almost always see the company was founded about five years ago. Almost always. You can you can tack this back. And it's because, it look, it was a great exit, but this, the founders just got so tired that when someone came with a good offer, they sold. And as a VC, the last thing you want to do is sell four to five years in. That's just when it's getting good. So there is tired, like I was up till midnight on December 31st closing a million dollar deal. That's good tired. Bad tired is this sunken eyes, this hunched over shoulder of, man, I just can't recruit another VP this quarter. I'm just too burnt. And sometimes those signs are subtle, but I've lived it. I know how to see it. And you'll never make the second five years if you don't have this just incredible energy and commitment. Well, it's lucky I'm so young and vibrant then. Um, but I do. But <laughs> even, even everyone gets tired. Adventure isn't the same. And, and the key actually isn't not getting tired. The key is reinventing yourself, reinventing the company. You had Ryan from Qualtrics on, on the shows. Uh, and he's talked about how Qualtrics, he's had to reinvent Qualtrics every three to four years into a new company. Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably part of the secret of why he has boundless energy. If he had to run the same company for, for all those years, I'm not sure he could do it. And so you have to find a way. Absolutely. No, I think Aaron Levy has also done an incredible uh, job in terms of management churn and reinventing the management team as well. Uh, yeah. But I would... I would... And most of, us, most of us can't do that. Most of us struggle to recruit just one management team. And we do it too slowly and we do it sequentially, not in parallel. And you hit a wall if you recruit sequentially. You can't recruit one VP every six months after you hit a million or two in revenue. You have to constantly be recruiting and not all of us can do it. And if you can't constantly recruit, we had an event at the co-selling space with Tiago from TalkDesk. You know, I, I invested in, in TalkDesk when he was the only U.S. employee. Now it's hundreds and hundreds. And I, I didn't even know this. I asked Tiago, how much time does he spend recruiting now? He said 60% of his time. If you can't do that at many, many tens of millions, of dollars, you're just never, you're going to hit a wall. The competition is going to eat you up alive or you're going to get so tired. You just can't take it anymore. Absolutely. No, I, I do agree. But I do want to move to one of my favorite topics and it's AC yes. optimization. It's one of my nerdy passions. So I want to discuss in terms of the ACV itself, what levels or, or indications do you have within ACV that present inherent potential for a unicorn? 
problem. I'm looking for a, a slightly nuanced version on that. I'm looking for outsized unit economics as best I can figure out at the time. So, for example, when I invested in TalkDesk back then in 2014, the product was $15 a month and SMB focused. Today, the company's closing seven-figure deals. And the per seat pricing is five times what it was back then. I'm looking for companies that can do that transition or that growth because all things being equal, you're going to grow faster. <laughs> when I invested in Algolia, a search as a service company, I was the first U.S. investor. The average customer was paying like $99 a month. Algolia has done seven-figure TCB deals now. It's just easier to get to eight and nine figures of revenue if you can drive those deal sizes up. Or put differently, here's my learning. I, as a CEO, as a founder, I sold a $15 a month product on average. We had big deals. We had six-figure and seven-figure deals, but they averaged out to $15 a month per seat per customer. What I know is that if you could do 30 or 45, actually, your job may be two or three times easier than mine. It really might be. It's the same amount of calories in or output out. It's the same amount of sales calls. It's the same amount of management team hires. It's the same amount of everything. And so I'm looking for folks that at least have the potential to be at the high end of, call it ACVs, I call it unit economics, the high end of their category of their space. But that's not the only way for success. There are many other ways. Slack, Slack. When it got going, wasn't at the high end. It's fairly expensive today, but Slack is the fastest growing SaaS company of all times, and they started cheap. <laughs> but I don't, know, I don't know how to figure that out. I don't know how to figure that out in the very early days. So what I do know how to figure out is if you have one or two bigger customers, I'm really good at figuring out if that's the future or an outlier. That's one of my secret weapons. So, so how do you look at those customers? So what, what is it? If Is it if kind of 80% are paying you more and two are paying you less? How does that go? I have, a, I have a cheat. I have a secret tip. Okay. And I'm just going to share it with you and our 50,000 listeners. Just me. Just me. I, just you. I ask you for your two largest customers and I call them and I use the same Colombo routine with them. I'm always very deferential on diligence calls. And I say, Harry, it's, it's Jason. Uh, just one last question, if you don't mind. How much do you pay for the product again? $10,000 a year. Just between us. Would you pay 20, Harry? And you know what they always say? Yeah. Oh, yeah, but... Don't, don't tell. Don't tell the CEO, but of course I'd pay 20. When I hear that, I know you have magic. I know we can go market together. I know if I help you hire the VP of sales and work on other things, we can just, we can just knock it out of the park. But when I hear, well, you know, I don't know that I'd pay more because this other product is pretty good too. I'm, I'm always out. I'm always out. I'm super intrigued then. How do you respond to the notion with that in mind and people potentially willing to pay more than they are? How do you respond to the notion that founders always undersell? Is it true in your opinion? Of course it's true. I, I've written about it. I lived it. I've done it. They don't always undersell. They don't undersell when the option is going bankrupt. But founders know that when Google or Facebook comes in as a customer or Salesforce, I can't, I can't lose Salesforce as a customer. And we always walk it back. We always, when Salesforce says, I can only pay $10,000 a year or I'm going to go to your competitor as founders, we always take the deal. And that's why when you hire a real VP of sales, that's one of the top five reasons magic happens because the VP of sales knows how to get that extra 10K out of the deal without, without breaking the deal. A bad VP of sales breaks the deal. A bad VP of sales loses you Salesforce or Google as a customer, but a good one adds so much value to the sales process and understands the stakeholders, understands the dynamics that magically, like magically she or he doubles the deal size out of your bigger deals just like that. So of course we understand. 
sell. Now, there are exceptions. My very first startup, I convinced our first customer to pay me $6 million a year. And I walked on the deal. And everyone was freaked out. My board was freaked out. Everyone was freaked out. But I did the math. And if they didn't agree to pay me $6 million, we were going to go bankrupt anyway. <laughs> so I walked out of the – this was a, you know, a Fortune 50 company with 50 people in the room to sign the contract. And I walked out of the deal. But I did it not because I didn't need the customer. I did it. But there was no point in signing a customer I couldn't make money off of. But the next one, I, I undersold. <laughs> <laughs> I returned to traditional uh, responses. Uh, yes. So what advice – Because I was out of – I was out of the death zone. <laughs> <laughs> what advice then would you give to founders that are nervous to ask for more? Is it simply hire a great VP of sales or get Jason? Yeah, well, there's two bits of advice. When you're ready, hire the VP of sales. When you're at a million in revenue, hire a VP of sales. And, and if they're any good, that's why magic happens in the first 90 days. They just take the same amount of leads and turn them into more money. And if you don't see that happen in one sales cycle, that's why you have to fire your VP of sales for this simple reason. Your VP of sales, all they really have to do to perform is to bring in a couple better reps and to maximize the revenue per lead. That's that's why great ones always do magic. But assuming you're, you're not yet ready to make that hire, you haven't made it, I have a different hack that I do, and it always works. Who's your largest customer? Aetna. How much does Aetna pay you? $50,000 a year. Do you have anyone like Aetna in your pipeline? Yes, I have whoever, Cigna. Okay, ask Cigna for twice as much or 50 percent more. You will never, you're never going to blow the deal or lose the deal. Worst case, you have to discount back to where you were. Best case, you get extra money. And the middle case is you learn. So the hack isn't always to, to change pricing in the middle of your tiny little customer base, but it's to ask more at the next prospect you have that is very similar to the best deal you've already closed. Mm-hmm. And it always works. It always works. I always say, Ask for 100K for the next deal that's just like your 50K deal. And the founders, it's like an epiphany and they go out and do it. And it all, they always close it. I do want to ask, we, we said about kind of founders, one of your tips that was hiring a VP of sales when you get to a million AR. I'm super intrigued yeah. because you had a very mixed experience with VPs of sales. You hired the paratroopers. As we all do. We all, most of us make this mistake. Absolutely. Most of us make no criticism. About 70% of the first VPs of sales don't work out. And I've learned a lot why. And it's actually almost never that VP of sales fault at all. It's actually just that you hired the wrong person for that stage and time of the company. So how do you determine then going forward the right person for the right stage and the right time? Yes. Well, there's if there's actually not a perfect formula, but there are what you can do instead is rule out candidates. That's the secret. You can rule out candidates because let's step back for a minute. Do you really think you're going to get the world's perfect VP of sales at one million in ARR, being one of the seven thousand SaaS companies within one mile of where I am in the Bay Area? No, you're not going to get the perfect VP of sales. Yeah, <laughs> right. You're basically and and since you're not going to get the perfect one, you're you're basically going to end up with two options: a washout or a stretch. Right. The washout is someone that washed out of a fancy logo and brand because they couldn't do it. And the stretch is someone that's never actually been a VP before. And the washouts never work. (laughs) (laughs) And they're very attractive because they worked at Box or they worked at Dropbox or they worked at wherever. Pick your fancy brand name. And we're very we're all very attracted to brands as first and even second time founders. But the washouts, if they couldn't hack it at that stage, it's actually harder to start up. It's not easier. It's harder. You have less support. You have less infrastructure. You have less help. And they never work out. So one, don't ever hire a washout. There's exceptions to every rule. So now you're stuck with the stretch, right? You're stuck with someone that was a director before or even a manager or something. So how do you mitigate risk with a stretch candidate? And I've 
boiled it down to at least one key criterion, which I've written about, but it's so important. They have to have hired at least two reps successfully because, and I know I've said this before, but you can't say it enough. A VP of sales is all is mostly a recruiting job. That's half of what he or she does. And taking a risk on someone that has never hired a successful rep before, the odds of that work out are almost zero. But if they've hired two good reps that hit quota, there's a decent chance they can hire 20, a high chance. And I can't tell you how many VP of sales candidates that I'm asked to interview and I talk to them and they did manage a team, but they didn't recruit that team. They inherited a team or they sort of hired people, but they didn't really. And so the simple way you can figure all this out is ask to talk to two of their, their best reps, talk to two of their reps and see if they really hired him and if they you think they really performed. And if you believe it, that's a bet I would take. The second hack you can do is ask your sales candidate for one or two customer references. Nobody does this. Do this. Talk to their customers. In SaaS, a great potential stretch VP of sales will have a couple customers that love them because we're doing solution sales. We're providing value. Sales in SaaS is not selling pool equipment. It's not selling timeshares. It's selling a solution and value. And your VP of sales is your guide to value. And if he or she can't give you two customer references, uh, don't hire the stretch. It, it, it's hopeless. Mm-hmm. No, I, I do agree with you on, on the stretch. Element. And no one does this. No one. I'll tell you, no one does this. No one talks to the reps. Their two best reps, and no one interviews their customers. Do it. This is such a critical hire. It's especially tragic because people don't do this, and they make they get tired, and they make they make the best hire they can. And when the VP of sales doesn't work out in three to four months, it's always worse than if they never made the hire. So do these extra steps because you're better off sucking it up with nobody than making the mishire. Say we do mishire. Is it best to fire fast and get out quick? For this position, yes. I do not believe in this fire fast nonsense. I believe more internet, blah, 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 in a world where there's infinite number of candidates that magically line up at your door and you can just fire someone and replace them instantly. I don't know where this world is. Maybe over there in London, you can do that. I don't know, my friend. But in the Bay Area, this is the most intense hiring, competitive hiring environment in the world. And you need your employee NPS to be high. I'll tell you, most of the companies I work with not only track their external NPS, they track their internal NPS. They track their glass door. They track everything. You can't fire everybody. <laughs> you, can't, you can't be a little tyrant. It doesn't work. Here's the thing. You don't want to fire anybody if you can help it. But if your VP of sales cannot come in and in one sales cycle get more revenue per lead than you could, you didn't hire a VP. You've got to let her go and let her go that day. No, I, I'm with you. And I, to be honest, but it's not fire fast. It's, it's fire must. If the VP of sales in one sales cycle cannot get more revenue out of X leads than you could, then it's not firing fast. It's, it's fire must. You must fire him or her because you're, it's going to get worse. They're going to hire up terrible reps. They're going to waste your leads. They're going to waste your time. And in 12 months, you're going to be worse off than you would have been far worse than without her. So it's, it's, but fire fast is some sort of Yahoo simplistic nuance of actually undoing a mistake. Hit the undo button in one sales cycle. Well, on that terribly positive note, we are going to leave part one there, but it is so fantastic to have Jason on the show. And have no fear, we will be back on Friday for part two, where Jason will discuss his biggest red flags when investing, why CEOs have to be in San Francisco, why it's impossible to have 100% gross margins, and much more. And if you enjoyed the show today, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings and Jason on Twitter at JasonLK. However, before we leave you today, Jason mentioned Algolia in the episode. And if you join us at Sasta Annual 2017, you'll get to see 
the incredible Algolia product and team at the event. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search and get started on their 14-day free trial at algolia.com forward slash SaaS to podcast. As always, Jason and I so appreciate your support and I cannot wait to bring you Friday's episode with part two with Jason Lemkin, founder at Sasta.